Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody welcome. Hello and welcome to show 642. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have a great story in line today. Oh yes, have we not? It is original to Starships over again. That's nice, always nice to know. So, I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. First up is, like I say, the main fiction, The Lizard and the Rat by Andrew Dana Hudson. Then we have our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Yes, that's all coming in today's show. I do hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. So... Tenant. What does everyone think of Tenant? Well, over, I mean, I think I might, I don't know if I've mentioned this, it's been that long ago. Mentioned it before, but we've got the cinemas over here. We can go to the cinemas. And I went to see it. I've been to see it twice now. (laughs) Yes, I went yesterday to see it as well. And like I say, the cinemas have got it like all perfect. Do you know what I mean? You kind of, you go in. It's all set out, you know, space, masks you've got to wear, you know, it's all, you know, done so over in the UK at this moment, you know what I mean, we're okay, but like I say, I went to see it twice there now, I'm not going to go into spoilers away, but I think it's a marvellous concept of an idea and to pull it off and... Yeah, there's people mentioned about the, the sound, but I've never had an issue with the sound. You know, in both times and both two different cinemas I've been to see it in, it's the sound quality's been great, but it just starts boom, straight away. You know what I mean? It's like it opens up at this Moscow concert hall, you know, like opera uh, venue, and I'm sure this is, you know, it has it happened before where like the 
the Moscow State Police or Army or Special Forces um, knocked out, you know, with gas, the whole audience, you know, that kind of when it was the Chechen rebels or something like that. And it starts off with that kind of, you know what I mean, and just for me, I loved it. There's still bits there that I'm kind of totally kind of trying to grasp and trying to work out, you know. And the first time I came, you know, I, I watched the kind of the YouTube film <laughs> review on it because, and I've been again, and like I say, even now there's still little bits, but it's, it just, I think it's just a great idea. Do you know what I mean? And just the the secrets it like un, un reveals, should I say? Like once the film, you know, once you go through the film and you like, it's like a ah, it's almost cathartic. You know, all oh, right, right. You know, so it's just. I love it. You know what I mean? It's 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 one of them films that I could probably see it another time. And what I honestly, when I I went there yesterday and just sat like by myself, you know what I mean? I had a couple of hours there to myself, and I got me popcorn with me me diet coke. It just I didn't you know wasn't with if you know when you watch the film you know what's going to happen. It was wasn't that kind of feeling. It just felt like a brand new film, and because there's that mu- there's that much. To take in, do you know what I mean? The second time viewing it, just was just as enthralling as the first time. So much going on, do you know what I mean? And like you see, you can kind of just take a, a pace back and then think, right, what? Ah, oh, right, that's what's you know, right, right. I get it, get it. Because there was a few times in the first time where I thought, well, how did this happen? Why did this? You know, and where did this machine come from? And what did this do? And where this time. You know, there was the subtle clues I'd kind of, oh, right, oh, I didn't, I missed that, you know what I mean? So, yes, if you haven't seen Tenant, I'm not sure how how it works for you in America. Is it in, well, is, I don't think, is, do you go to cinemas over there? I'm, I'm not sure. Australia, I know Australia, there's a few lockdowns going in place now. Mind you, we are South Tyneside, my local, you know, County there, South Times. We're on the the watch list now for like another lockdown. You know, like we we UK is going through mini lockdowns at the moment, and South Tyneside's now on the kind of the at risk register. So bloody hell, here we go again. Anyway, let's get into some stories. And like I say, the main fiction is the Lizard and the Rat by Andrew Dana Hudson. Andrew. He is a speculative fiction writer and sustainability researcher. His stories have appeared in Lightspeed, Slate, Future Tense, Terraform, MIT, Technology Review, Little Blue Marble and more, as well as numerous books and anthologies. He is a member of the 2020-2021 class of the Clarion Workshop. He lives in Temp... Is it Temper? Arizona or Tempe, Arizona. Find him at, and there's a link there to andrewhudson.com, and he's on Twitter as well. This story is narrated by Andrea Richardson. Andrea is a British singer and actress with extensive stage and film performances to her name. She began narration and voiceover work in 2014, but enjoys using her skills. Existing skills in different ways, and you can find her at andrearichardson.co.uk or on Facebook. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Hold up, what was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. The Lizard and the Rat by Andrew Dana Hudson Delhi was silent, but for the dripping of her suit. Carla felt at home in the empty place. She wove through maze-like slum husks, shuffled across melting highways. She was a ghost. Spectral, in the silvery shed suit. Even though the dehumidifier on her back left a trail of water, for once she didn't fear being followed. She was protected by superstition, the bright sun, and the sixty-degree sea glowing in the corner of her faceplate. Devoid of bustle, Carla could read the truth of the city. Here, a rich arcology, sealed up under mirror-shaded glass, humming airwells, turning the soaking loo wind into courtyard waterfalls. There is a middle-class neighbourhood, still favoured by the grid, ACs in every window blasting like furnaces, each cool space claimed by one faction or another. The temples and cults, the communists and unions, the gangs and looters, the army and the remnants of the government, left behind when the capital moved to Darjeeling. What wasn't cooled and contained was lost, Stripped and abandoned, broken solar panels were painted high albedo white. The open streets were too deadly for life. Window box flowers shriveled by a month in the choking heatwave air. When she found the high-walled compound on Abdul Kalam Road, Carla double-checked for shadows before settling to work. The razor-wire gate was strong, but she had a way with security systems. With the credentials her client had provided, she cajoled it to open for her. Once in, she circled the gravel lawn until she was satisfied it wasn't mined. That would be excessive, but this was trillionaire Darneshvora's house. Trillionaires were all insane. Carla didn't like doing jobs on hire. Too dangerous, getting mixed up in someone else's drama. But the client, Jayanti, who had approached Carla through her fence, had promised the one thing stolen jewels and art couldn't buy. Passage North. India was determined not to end up like Bangladesh, a nation trampled in the stampede of its own migration. Instead, a billion people were told to flee the summer heat in an orderly fashion. Checkpoints were manned, papers demanded. The hotter it got, the harder it became to get out. How the client had the power to arrange her migration, Carla didn't know. 
but the middle-aged woman had had blueprints and codes for the home of Jantar Mantar's impossibly wealthy CEO, and Carla desperately wanted to escape Delhi. That home's white walls gleamed in the shimmering sun. Stately was the English word. At least it had been, back when it was an ambassador's residence. The Netherlands symbol of the diplomatic ideal. Now everything but the front façade was a mash of gaudy, ultra-modern renovations. Real, fuck-you architecture. Carla considered herself something of a connoisseur of rich people's houses. She stared disapprovingly as she walked around to the servant's entrance. She almost tripped over the body. The boy lay in the half-shadow of the veranda, cooked in a pool of useless sweat. He looked taller than her, but reed thin and definitely not an adult. Judging by the razor-wire gashes on his limbs, he'd scaled the walls, but been unable to break the bulletproof glass. When the sun got high, he'd succumbed to the heat. Carla stepped around him and set to dismantling the lock. But when she slid the door open, and cooler air wafted out of the sealed house, Carla sensed movement behind her. The boy had stirred, coughed. She bent down and saw that, despite the heat, his chest still moved with a little breath. Carla swore. For a moment she tried to make herself seriously consider stepping on the boy's throat. It would be an act of mercy, surely. And then she gave up, grabbed his wrists, and dragged him inside. Inside was a gallery of old astronomical devices on overly ornate pedestals, plastic toy rockets suspended from the ceiling. She dropped the ragged old boy and went from room to room. When she found the kitchen, she thanked Lord Buddha. A trillionaire had a walk-in freezer. It wasn't running. The whole house was shut down, so the batteries wouldn't explode. But its porcelain vacuum chambers kept the cool inside. She tugged it open, and the number on the faceplate began to tick down. She pulled the boy into the freezer. Carla bent to examine him. She couldn't tell how old he was. His face was leathery from the sun, but his features had a prepubescent slightness. He had the thin arms and stout legs of the youths who spent hours in the pedal arcades. She wrestled off his clothes, exposing dark skin inflamed with splotches of heat rash. The razor wire cuts weren't the only fresh wounds on his body. His back was dotted with half a dozen small gouges where he'd been poked with something sharp. Carla found a hand towel and wet it with the hot water dripping out of her suit. She held it to some frozen cans until the sensor in her hand told her it was well below normal body temperature, and then she draped it over his forehead. She put another over his chest. With a first aid kit from under the sink, she tended to his cuts. As she worked, Carla tried not to look at the time ticking on her display. She'd disarmed or avoided the alarms that would alert the owner to return to his house, but the boy hadn't. She'd planned out her movements. Upstairs, hit the safe Gianti had set her to rob. Then what? Even if the boy awoke, he couldn't go outside unprotected. Might the trillionaire have his own shed suit somewhere? If not, what could she do but leave? Hope the trillionaire wouldn't mind coming home to a half-cooked boy in his freezer. When she did find the study, and got to work on the analogue safe, tackily hidden behind a painting of Samavasana, her mind kept straying to the boy. What had he been doing outside? It took her three tries to enter the combination right. Carla was used to stealing jewellery or art, sometimes antiques, whatever the rich left behind when they jetted off to summer in Kathmandu or Lhasa. But the contents of this safe were different. A strange silver canister, a plastic key fob, and, just as her client had said, a fat, leather-bound ledger. She flipped through the glossy pages. Endless numbers, addresses, rupee amounts. 
Did Jayanti plan to blackmail the trillionaire? Seemed like petty work for someone with the pull to book passage to the north. The lights flashed on. The mansion filled with white noise. Out the window, Carla saw a helicopter approach, clouds of coolant whipping out of its four rotors. Her heart began to pound, loud, in the shed suit. She was supposed to message Jayanti when she had the loot, and then head to a drop-off. If she was going to slip away, alone and out the gate, now was the time. Instead, she pinged a textless ping to her client, stuffed the ledger and canister into her satchel, grabbed the key fob, and ran downstairs. In the freezer, she shook the boy's shoulders. She had no idea why she thought he would wake, but his eyes fluttered open. Boot! He tried to wrench away, and Carla held him down. She did look like a ghost in her silver shed suit. Rich man coming, Carla said in Hindi. Can you run? The simple question pierced his confusion. He moved his legs and nodded. Occasionally in her life, Carla found herself acting on a plan she didn't know she had. She sat in an empty theatre, observing each choice with bemused surprise. The first time she stole was like that, putting her hand in a rich woman's purse, a crime of opportunity she didn't think about until it was done. Now she watched herself lead the boy through the house, downstairs, to a plush basement she'd seen on the plans her client had sent. Other her held the key fob to the wall, walked round the room. The boy was asking her questions, but she didn't register them. There was a thump, and the helicopter whine began to slow. Her hand kept sweeping the wall, felt a click. And just like that, she was out of the theatre, back behind her own eyes. Behind a panel, stairs spiralled further down. They descended. Beneath the compound was a second house, a bunker. Carla hadn't seen it on the blueprints, but there had been something there. A lacuna. She wondered if it had been built in the embassy days, or added by the trillionaire. Either way, it was marked with excess. Rooms more lavish than those above, filled with games, screens, pool tables, pools. All the furnishings plutocrats imagined would let them wait out a heatwave, superstorm, or riot. They pulled a table to block the door behind them. "'What's your name?' she asked the boy. "'AJ!' he said, panting. "'Auntie, where are we going?' "'Auntie?' Carla grimaced. She wasn't that old. I liked Boot better. I can hear you, you know. The trillionaire's voice cackled in English from the walls. And see you. There's nowhere to go. So you'll just have to give me my fucking stuff back. Where were they going to go? What had her brilliant plan been getting them stuck down here? The trillionaire read her mind. Trapped like temple rats. I could roast you with city air. Rats! Carla laughed at the gamble that other her had made. Once she had broken into a film star's bungalow through a hidden escape tunnel the owner had naively hired half the neighbourhood to build. She'd been in enough of these houses to know that the rich needed to feel cleverer than the mobs. Slipping away was always preferable to waiting the rabble out. With faith in her key fob, Carla searched the walls. There was banging from the stairs they'd come down. You should have just stolen my antiques or my art, the trillionaire said from the walls. What's a little charity to me, or my insurance company? But what you took is private and important. Come up, tell me who gave you my codes, and maybe I won't bake you. Your antiques are tacky, Carla said. Didi, the boy said, nervous. Well, older sister was better than auntie, Carla decided, but she didn't know if she liked his familial tone. Better for him not to be so involved in her crime when they were caught. 
but then Carla found it. Another passage. She held out her hand, and together they fled. It was cooler in the tunnel. Carla pulled off the hood of her shed suit and sensed the boy studying her. They walked as fast as they could in the dim light of her small torch. Carla had heard rumours of Delhi's secret underground. Ancient cave temples, colonial, slaver catacombs, crawlerways for government intrigue. These seemed to be the latter, a stooped network that connected the embassies before they'd moved north with the capital. Carla tried a few doors, but none budged or responded to the key fob. Their tunnel had branched twice when they'd heard the echoes of Merck's behind them. She took a random turn, another, and soon lost her sense of direction. The shouts seemed to grow closer. She thought she caught the sneering voice of the trillionaire, giving orders, and she swore the hornet buzz of drones. Then the boy, AJ, grabbed her shoulder, pointed to a metal hatch that wasn't like the other doors. Together they wrenched it open, and crawled into a cramped concrete tube. The sound they made attracted footsteps, and they pulled the hatch closed and waited, not daring to move or look, until long after the boots had passed. When they heard nothing more, AJ tapped her again and beckoned her to follow on hands and knees, deeper into the tube. Eventually there was another hatch. Elbows knocking against the walls, they pulled it open, and then they stepped through into the smoke and sound of a market. Somehow they had found Udyogbawan Station, here, and for kilometres around, the metro had become Delhi in refuge. Corrugated plastic, pressed vegetable wood, and colourful curtains carved the space into shop stalls, sleeping spaces, dirty shrines. Junked airplane engines dangled from the ceiling, jerry-rigged to generators. These circulated the air which blew through Jagard airwells and over swamp coolers to keep the subway habitable. Carla desperately wanted to relax, but knew the market bustle was little protection from Jantamantar Merks and whoever else might be after A.J. When the trillionaire gave up finding them under the embassies, he'd put the word out. A bounty. Enough to make eyes sharper and memories keener. Maybe he'd already done it. She wasn't the only one in the station wearing a shed suit, but the shiny figures were few enough that she stood out. A.J.'s shirt had bloodstains, though he didn't look as cooked as she would have expected. She needed to anonymise them, make them disappear into the crowd. This was something Carla was good at, better even than she was at locks and alarms. She moved from stall to stall, acquiring new clothes piece by piece, walking neither too quickly nor too furtively. She kept them to the edges, face down, looking at the wares, never crossing the main market drag. Some shopkeeps would remember them, but it wouldn't matter so long as she kept them moving. She bargained for a loose blue curtie top and a headscarf, plus an unblooded t-shirt and dotty for AJ. She got out of the shed suit, glad to be free of his bulk, stuffing the overlapping pieces in her satchel. They shop-walked like this to Janpath Station, changed, then moved quickly on to an ITO. Now the best thing to do was stay out of sight. They dunked into a smelly snack shop, hailed a chaiwala, and sat down in a dim booth to have tea. "'Can you teach me to be a super-thief?' AJ asked right away. He didn't seem bothered by hot tea or the steamy underground. Carla was amazed he was alive. "'No!' "'Well, maybe,' Carla considered. "'How did you know where that hatch led?' A.J. shrugged. The princes know all these little tunnels. They took us through them sometimes. Who are the princes? Of the Agni Kumara. Carla knew the name. Those crazy Janes? She thought of the Samavasana painting in the Trillionaire's study, in a Janist style. What are they doing in the bungalow zone? I thought that cult was in Balsoir. The cricket communists ran them out. I think there was a truce for a while, but I guess the commies found out about the trials and beat up most of the princes. 
But Martanda, the big prince, he has a rich friend. Now they're building a huge temple by the old golf club. This was news to Carla, and she made a point to follow the weird turf politics of the gangs that had been scrabbling over the city since the government had moved to Darjeeling. The trials? Is that how you ended up in that maniac's veranda? The other boys. AJ looked away as he said this. They said they always ran, and the princes, they would always chase them down. So when they gave me my head start, I climbed the wall instead so they couldn't catch me. I'm a really good climber. You should give me a job. I don't give jobs. Got family? AJ shook his head. How did you fall in with the Agni Kumara? Summer was starting. They had a cool place to sleep. I don't like eating the commies bugs. And the princes were really nice at first. AJ shrugged, and Carla felt a pang of anger that boys like AJ had no better option than to throw in with one gang or another just to get indoors. Why trials? To join their gang? AJ shook his head. Matanda, he says he's looking for a boy who is an old king. Says the right boy won't mind the heat. So they send one boy out each morning to see how long we'd last. Carla looked around the crowded tube with new nervousness. She thought of the gouges in his back, perhaps a knife forcing him out into the sun. These Agni Kumara would not take kindly to her rescuing their sacrifice, or whatever AJ was. She considered ditching the boy, sending him to fetch Roti and slipping off. No guarantee he'd be safer with her, carrying stolen goods. Then he'd be alone. "'What did you steal?' AJ asked. Carla shouldn't show him, but the trillionaire had AJ's picture too. Perhaps he deserved to know what he might get chased for. She opened her satchel, and AJ peered in and looked confused. "'A book and a metal can?' "'Business records. Maybe for blackmail. Some bit of new tech. Rich man makes satellites?' Carla shrugged. "'My client wanted what was in the safe.' You want a super thief lesson? Using a fence. They don't pay very well, but they don't send you to steal stuff that gets darnished for it after you either. So why didn't you? <sighs> My client promised passage north, Carla sighed. She arranged a boat up the Yamuna to Himachal Pradesh. My uncle is in Srinagar. Hillywood? Is your uncle a big-time film producer? Does he give jobs? I have many movie pitches. No! Carla wished she could have the other her make this decision. Listen, sounds like the cricket communists might protect you from this matanda. I can get you to them on the way to my backup drop. I'm already late, so a detour can't hurt too much. AJ narrowed his eyes like he was considering a hard bargain at a vegetable bazaar. Okay. First, they needed another shed suit. The metro was filled with eyes and interests. They'd be safer, Carla thought, trekking the empty streets. Now that she had her bearings, Carla led them back through the underground to Mandy House Station. Here, tucked behind the old ticket counter, Carla had occasionally purchased tools of her trade that were illicit even in the unpoliced seasonal subway slums. The black market was cramped with racks of handguns and machetes, crates of pharmaceuticals, buckets of stolen topsoil, barrels of banned hydrofluorocarbon coolants, stacks of wafer-thin electronics from before peak moors. The proprietress was new, Carla saw, and she lounged on a rug scrolling through vintage Thai fashion socials, content to let her two guard dogs watch Carla and AJ browse. One, a lean deli mutt, lay at her feet, a single fang poking out of lazy lips. The other, a headless robot, waited by the door, ready to tackle them if they left without permission. Carla picked through a bin of mismatched shed suit pieces, looking for logos of NGOs she figured would have sourced from the same fabricators. 
It was the sort of material knowledge one grew into, floating in the churn of evacuation, protective settlement, and rehoming that governments and aid groups got so good at during her youth. "'What else should I know to be a super-thief?' A.J. pestered her. "'Weren't you a Jane this morning?' Carla deflected. She held up silvery-green cross pants to A.J.'s waist, gauging the fit. "'Non-stealing. I remember that being important.' "'Not me. Anyway, the princes weren't serious about the teachings. They put on religious games, but just the time pass.' He squinted at her. "'You're Buddhist? Are you worried about your karma?' Carla felt annoyed. She must have sworn to Lord Buddha in the earlier excitement. Mind your business. Is that why you saved me? For the merit? Carla tried to guess the stakes of such a question. She was tired, from wearing the weight of the shed suit all day, and from the adrenaline soaring in her veins. Fear, distrust, elation at his unexpected survival must all be tangled up for AJ. Still, no good making up meaning where there wasn't any. Merit is something to care about on Earth she said finally. Does it seem much like Earth out there right now? She handed him the pants. AJ considered this as he climbed into his shed suit. It was cheaper than hers and didn't fit perfectly, but it functioned. It would reflect the sun, purge moisture and fumes from the air, and wick sweat so the body could cool itself. Martanda says this isn't hell, AJ said. It's the wheel of time at its lowest point. The Utapini is almost here, and things will start getting better. Just first the heat comes and cleanses the country, he says, so the next god-teacher guy has to show up. That's who he's looking for, someone who used to be that king and hang out with Buddha, you know? Carla tried to remember the history lessons the rust-robed monks had made her memorise in the shade camps as a child. Bimbisara? Yeah, that guy! Carla sympathised with the accelerationist theologies the gurus peddled these days. Who could endure these deadly summers and not ache for the heat to mean something? Why do they think sending boys outside will find Bimbisara's reincarnation? AJ played with his shed suit's faceplate. Matanda says the wheel is stuck, or broken maybe, and Bimbisara can't get the karma to get out of hell, so Matanda says he'll come through and show himself when hell comes close enough to burn the world. I do say that. The voice was a deep hiss, like boiling water. It came from the doorway. AJ seemed to shrink into his shed suit. Carla looked and saw a skinny bald man standing there with a toothy grin. He held a cookery and stroked it across his open left hand, blade first, tracing the lines on his palm. Behind him, two bigger men entered, each brandishing a stumpy printed machine gun. Carla found herself puzzling over the robot dog. Once she had been in a sweet shop when a man had pulled a pistol on his girlfriend. The robot there had crossed the room and caved in the shooter's ribcage before the cashier had looked up. Here, though, the guard bot sat utterly still. She looked to the mutt on the rug, which growled. The fence put a hand out to quiet it and gave Carla a blank, chilly look. Martanda grinned his toothy thanks. When I heard that two thieves had robbed the richest man in Delhi, Martanda said, looking at AJ, I couldn't help but remember watching your legs squirrelling up over Dineshji's wall. Behind the faceplate, AJ's eyes darted around, but there was nowhere to go. He couldn't get past them in his awkward shed suit. Tell me, Martanda sized up Carla, when you found him, did he have the glow, the halo of the Turfankara? Has he given you any wisdom? Removed any obstacles, maybe? Or is he just a lucky lizard, too stupid to leave this world? Carla didn't say anything. 
She thought about jumping for one of the guns on display, but there was no way they were loaded. She cursed herself for not splitting with the boy when she'd had the chance. Alone, they might have each slipped away. Martanda didn't seem bothered by her silence. He motioned, and the other princes grabbed Carla and AJ and roughed them out of the shop. Dineshji will owe me well for this, Martanda said conversationally. And you, my little lizard, will be a good lesson to the other boys. On the march through the tube, Carla tried to catch the eye of a little girl washing clothes in a plastic basin, an old man fiddling with a mesh router, a veiled woman kneeling on a prayer rug for afternoon salah. Each of them and more looked away or hustled behind partitions. The Agni Kumara had a reputation, sadistic, territorial, and brutal to those who got in their way. After barely a kilometre, Matanda unlocked a red-painted shack and stepped back, gesturing for Carla to enter. When she didn't move, he drew his cookery and gave her a sharp poke between the shoulder blades. Carla gasped and stumbled through the door. Inside, lit by cheap LED tea lights, a wooden frame and a black plastic sheet formed crude airlock. Not wanting another prod in the back, Carla pulled back the plastic and crouched to enter the tunnel beyond. The air was stale and noticeably warmer. The path sloped up into darkness. Carla walked. Two hundred metres on, her hand found another plastic sheet. It was hot, and she knew there was open air on the other side. Let me put on my shed suit, she called behind her. We aren't going too far, she heard Matanda hiss. You'll be fine. She hesitated and felt the point of the cookery pressed into the back of her thighs. She took a deep breath and pushed through the curtain. The air hit her face like a bucket of red coals. Her skin seared, her eyeballs began to ache. She wasn't even in the sun yet. The heat was a weight, pressing. She forced herself to inhale and her lungs boiled. For a second she could smell the stink of smog and the curdling of dying things. But then her nose hairs shriveled and she couldn't smell anything at all. The others climbed out behind her. A.J. had gotten his suit sealed and running. The princes had wet rags wrapped around their faces and arms. Not enough protection to be comfortable, but enough to keep them alive a while. She wondered how quickly her core temperature would go up, and when she would pass out. Could she last as long as A.J. had? They stepped out of the shadows, and Carla saw that they stood at the bottom of ancient stone steps. It was a step-well, dry now, lined with brick and mortar arches. Agresen Kibauli was the name. Some functional fragment of her mind informed her. They climbed the stairs, and with each step the air got hotter. When they came into the sun, it was like holding her cheek to a stove. Nobody talked. They cut through an alley and walked along Tolstoy Road. The humidity soaked her skin in a fake, taunting sweat. Her stomach churned, and she focused on her feet because looking around made her dizzy. They were in the shadow of the tower when Carla realised where they were. The Jantamanta Corporation building shot into the sky, a brick of black solar glass. She saw her reflection and swooned. Someone caught her and dragged her through an airlock, and then she was gasping at cool, filtered air. AJ held her by the armpits. He pulled her inside, stronger than he looked. One of the princes opened a canteen. The metal burned her lips, but the water was cold. She swallowed as much as she could, and then vomited. She heard Matanda laughing at her, a sewer steam rasp. When she stood up, leaning on AJ's steadying hand, the Agni Kumara raised their guns again and marched them through the cavernous Spartan lobby to an elevator. Carla wasn't surprised the room was empty. Big companies like Jantamanta had government dispensations to shuttle their employees north every summer. But someone must be in the building, and the elevator doors opened as they approached. 
Matanda pressed the button for the top floor. You're certainly no Tetankara, Matanda chuckled. Not even a prince. You haven't the gut to survive cleansing fire. Not like my lizard here. Say, what will you do if you find this reincarnation? Carla asked. She was collecting her head again after the dumbing heat, and felt a deep frustration at the cruelty and confidence of these men who thrived on disaster. She knew speaking up was unwise, but for a moment the other version of her, the one that boiled away all of her that wasn't instinct and intuition, took the reins. Give up your rank? Bow down? As long as these boys keep dying in the street, you get your men, your temple, your cruel game. You rule your bit of underground. One survives, becomes your king Bimbisara. What then? Martanda scowled, but didn't speak. The other princes exchanged a glance, then looked at AJ. For a minute, the elevator music twanged. When the elevator stopped, the doors opened on a strange garden, held under a glass dome. There were trees and green grass and odd curving structures made of red-painted concrete. The rat burglars! You finally crawled out of the sewer! Carla recognised the voice. Welcome! Do you like my observatory? Danish Vora had the taut, puffy skin of someone who did too much transfusion therapy. Flanked by Merks, he waved them out of the elevator. You've seen my house, so you know how much I like old stuff. He pointed to the red structures. This is the original Jantamantha. Astronomical instruments, hundreds of years old. I picked it up, put it on top of my building. A stargazing roof for my stargazing company. Nice, yeah? Daneshji, my friend. Matanda embraced the trillionaire who accepted gingerly. Carla and AJ exchanged a glance. The two people in Delhi that they each feared most were hugging. You've done me a favour, Martanda, Danesh said. Tell me, do you know them? The boy is mine, a runaway from the temple, Martanda said, and a prince jerked back AJ's hood. The woman? I think she tricked him into helping her. No, she didn't, AJ interrupted. But I'm glad we took your dumb stuff. One of the princes punched him in the stomach. Danesh chuckled and turned to Carla looked her up and down. Despite her heat stroke, she shivered. I like you better out of that tin foil, pretty rat, Danish said. I'm sorry I was so rude earlier. I didn't expect uninvited guests. But look, I can be hospitable. Tell me, who gave you the codes to my house? Carla didn't answer. What could she, a thief trying to get out of town, possibly have to say to a man with his own space programme? She didn't know enough about Jayanti to lead him to her, nor did Carla think that that would do her any good. Instead, she scanned for some back exit. He must have one, right? Just like before? Hey! Focus! Danesh stepped closer, snapping his fingers in her face. Who gave you the codes to my fucking house? Behind him, she saw Martanda's toothy grin, and AJ struggling in the prince's grip. Carla could smell chlorine on Danesh. While they had fled for their lives, the trillionaire had taken a swim. Who fucking... But he stopped, anger broken by annoyance. He tapped the phone in his ear and listened. Fine, yes, bring her up. He looked at Carla again. I had business today, rat. Your little thieving and scurrying has been interrupting the work of your betters. Carla expected to be sent away. To wait in some windowless room for her fate.
But instead, Danish waved his mercs to stay put. Maybe he wanted the flex of holding prisoners at gunpoint during his meeting. Maybe he just didn't care. Too rich to be subject to normal laws. Morality. Possibly even physics. So everyone stood there, shuffling their feet in the silence. A lone bird chirped in the trees. Then a woman stepped out of the elevator, flanked by three men who stood like soldiers, plus two sour-faced mercs in Gentile Mantai uniforms. She wore a dark sari and had undyed hair streaked with grey. Carla's mouth fell open. It was her client. General! Danish forced a smile. You are too kind to meet me here. I would happily come to the Rajbari. I've just been delayed, as you could see. Jayanti smiled at the man that, two days earlier, she had hired Carla to rob. Carla's mind was racing, trying to piece it together. When she missed the drop after her ping, perhaps Jayanti, a general, had somehow tracked her location, or maybe she and Danesh really did have prior business together, or maybe it was some strange dharma that dragged them together. Carla felt Jayanti's eyes on her. Carla, dear, I hope you have that ledger for me, the woman said. No one spoke. Carla fumbled in her satchel, past the crumpled-up shed suit. Her hand brushed the metal canister and then found the leather book. She held it out to Janti. Janti stepped forward, ignoring Matanda's princes and Danish's mercs, and took the ledger. Thank you, dear. Your boat and exit papers are in order. I hope you'll forgive me. The codes I gave you weren't quite good enough to keep Mr. Vora's alarm system at bay. Then, as if this betrayal were nothing, Jayanti opened the ledger. She studied the pages, occasionally clucking her tongue. Danish, for a long time I did think you were a patriot, she said. Danish blanched. His men wavered uncertainly. You were so quick to offer your rockets and satellites to our mission. I said, here's a man who wants to save his country. Exactly, Danish said. But Jayanti continued. But our plan leaked and the Deccan billionaires scrambled to buy abandoned land. They saw the opportunity ahead. Not a big concern, but someone had beaten them to it. Shell companies suddenly held huge swathes of storm-chewed coast, the Great Plains, and they weren't selling. She held up the ledger. These companies, I'd guess? Defiance flashed on Dinesh's puffy face. I made investments. I'm a businessman. Someone will redevelop those lands, if the mission works. What do you care, General? You're no cricket communist. A great nation cannot be owned by a single man. Jayanti was cold. What do we promise our people when we ask them to fight the Russians? Who tan on their north beaches while the south burns? You'd send them to war, with a vision of what? Renting back their homes from you? <laughs> no. I'm taking your investments. That's why I accelerated the mission. Sent Carla here to find your secrets. Carla started at her name. She'd been in a trance, hand still in her bag, fingering a latch on the canister. All this would have happened without her, she knew. But she was here. Witness to powers, because she saved the lizard boy. Fates bound up. Danesh shook with hate, unable to choose what offended him most. Daneshji, what's this mission? Martanda's eyes flickered with an odd fear. Jayanti regarded Martanda with distaste. The world abandoned us. 
Each country charts a path through the climate crisis they hope will put them on top, so they accept our extinction. We are their sacrifice. Our dead do not move them, nor our baking cities. They'll not risk their sun-powered planet on the other side of the century, so they won't do what must be done. She waved at the dome. We will spray a silver smoke high in the stratosphere, which will darken the sun, enough to give us respite from this awful heat. The North could have done this long ago, but they fretted the side effects. We, however, have nothing to lose, so we put our hand on destiny. The Russians fear this. They'll strike at us. The American cowards, the Chinese, they won't back us. So we'll have a great war, paid for by this ledger. Danesh collected himself. Then our deal is off. I designed the dispersal prototype myself, launched the satellites. I am a patriot. But I'll not do this just to see you cheat me. Jayanti shook her head pityingly. My forces seized your Bengaluru facilities hours ago, while you chased after my thieves. We have your launch sites, your factory. I even, and she looked at Carla again, have your secret prototype. I've already triggered the injection. Look. Everyone looked up. It was hard to notice at first, but then Carla saw it, a film spreading across the sky like incense spirals. She squinted at the sinking sun and realised there were now two smogs, the brown cloud that squatted over the city below their perch atop the tower, and this grey haze high above, engulfing the world. She heard a click. Matanda had drawn a revolver. He pointed his kukri at Jayanti. "'You cannot halve the wheel,' he hissed. "'To stop the cleansing would be to trap us here, in the most profane age. It's sacrilege. No!' Guns came up. Carla tensed for a shootout, some absurd combination of schemes and forces far beyond her control of the sun and the hothouse sky. But no gunplay came. Martanda's rage was just posturing. Danesh only cared so much for his real estate play. Jayanti preferred sending thieves and soldiers to do her dirty work. The three studied each other. Carla could see each calculating, each working through a compromise that would save their skins probably leave them each wealthier or more powerful. The rich man who chased her, the fanatic who threw her into fire, and the spook who used her as a distraction. Carla held her breath, and found herself again in the theatre. Her hands took the canister, the prototype, from her bag, flipped the latch, and twisted. Other her tossed the cylinder into the centre of the showdown. For a moment nothing happened, and then it erupted with silver smoke and the reek of sulphur. Everyone was enveloped, but Carla was already running, grabbing AJ's arm, pulling him through the agent observatory. She thought she heard gunfire. The smoke seemed to chase her, but she saw it. A back stare. Then her ankle turned. She sprawled, yelped with pain. AJ stopped a pace ahead, looking at the exit, and then back at her. The smoke overtook them, and all she could see was the dull silver of the cloud and the bright silver of his shed suit. He almost seemed to glow. Carla coughed on the smoke, couldn't find her feet. Then suited hands found her arm, dragging her to the stair. Leaning on each other, Carla and AJ rushed down spiralling flights. Above, they heard more raps of distant gunfire. Somehow, Carla pulled on her shed suit and zipped it closed. After endless steps, they reached the lobby, stumbling out into the boiling evening. They crossed Connaught Place in silence. 
Her ankle throbbed. Still no one followed. If anyone had thought to chase them, they didn't have shed suits at hand. They wound through old Delhi. AJ took her hand, and Carla realised she'd been shaking. I'm slowing you down, she said. He shrugged. Can I see your boat? he asked. Carla was numbly surprised to find the boat was indeed waiting on the Yamuna. The sleek hovercraft sat in the runnel of toxic sludge trickling the bottom of the empty riverbed. They descended holy steps, past funeral pyres that each century found new fuel. Plague victims, countless poor, bodies shriveled by the sun. Carla's code unlocked the boat, and they climbed in and turned on the AC. Last chance to split, Carla said. We're trouble for each other. AJ grinned, and then sobered. What happens if there's a war? Keep low, like lizards and rats. Try not to get stepped on. She paused. I could teach you some stuff? Super thief stuff? Maybe. Sure. As they left Delhi, the sunset was a strange and bloody red. They watched the silver smoke spread, then disappear into the sky. The thermometer ticked down. Clouds gathered on the horizon. There you go. Big thank you to Andrew. Andrew, you're a star. That rocks. Thank you so much. What a story, my bloody hell. What a story. And Andrea, it's always lovely to have you on. It is a, an honour and a pleasure. Thank you so much. Next up is our very own, our very own Amy H. Sturgis. Ames! Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back into genre history. And today I would like to talk about several biographies related to science fictional subjects. The first I'd like to talk about is not yet published. It will be out in October 2020. But just last night, that is the night before I am recording this, I attended a live event online sponsored by the Huntington Library about this forthcoming biography because so much of it was based on research done there at the Huntington. The Huntington is, among many other things, the home of the papers of Octavia Butler, the U.S. science fiction author who lived from 1947 to 2006 and was known for multiple Hugo and Nebula Award wins. She was, in 1995, the first science fiction writer to receive the MacArthur Fellowship, known as the Genius Grant. Uh, She's the author of the Patternist series, the Xenogenesis series, the Parable series, and novels like Kindred and Fledgling, and is one of the great science fiction authors of the 20th century, not just from the United States, but anywhere. And Linnell George, journalist and essayist, has spent several years in the Huntington Library, in the Octavia Butler papers, preparing for this biography. I have not yet read it because it's not yet out, but I was so impressed by the interview, by the event with Linnell George. I'm really looking forward to reading this book. So I did want to share with you, if you are looking for something new to read, that A Handful of Earth, A Handful of Sky, The World of Octavia E. Butler will be available soon, and I will share with you here the official blurb for the book. 
A Handful of Earth, A Handful of Sky, The World of Octavia E. Butler offers a blueprint for a creative life. From the perspective of award-winning science fiction writer and MacArthur genius, Octavia E. Butler, it is a collection of ideas about how to look, listen, breathe, how to be in the world. This book is about the creative process, but not on the page. Its canvas is much larger. Author Linnell George not only engages the world that shaped Octavia E. Butler, she also explores the very specific processes through which Butler shaped herself, her unique process of self-making. It's about creating a life with what little you have. Hand-me-down books, repurposed diaries, journals, stealing time to write in the middle of the night, making a small check stretch, bit by bit by bit. Highly visual and packed with photographs of Butler's ephemera, a handful of earth, a handful of sky, draws the reader into Butler's world, creating a sense of unmatched intimacy with the deeply private writer. There's a great resurgence of interest in Butler's work, Readers have been turning to her writing to make sense of contemporary chaos, to find a plot point that might bring clarity or calm. Her books have become the centerpiece of book group discussions, while universities and entire cities have chosen her titles to anchor Big Read, Freshman Read, and One Book, One City programs. The interest has gone beyond the printed page. Ava DuVernay is adapting Butler's novel Dawn for television. A Handful of Earth, A Handful of Sky brings Octavia's prescient wisdom and careful thinking out of the novel and into the world. End quote. One of the things that really struck me with the event last night was that Linnell George explained the purpose of the book as answering two questions. How does one become a writer? And how did one become Octavia Butler? I'm really excited about this book, so I wanted to share that with you. The other two biographies I want to discuss are already published, and I have read them, and to varying degrees, I do recommend both. The first I Want to Tackle comes from 2019, and it is Hidden Wyndham, Life, Love, Letters. It is a biography of John Wyndham, or John Wyndham Parks Lucas Bain and Harris, the English science fiction writer who lived from 1903 to 1969 and is best known for post-apocalyptic stories, also sometimes known as cozy catastrophes. I think that's a horrible title to use. I don't like to use it, but that is uh, one of the terms applied to his work, including works like Day of the Triffids from 1951 and The Midwich Cuckoos from 1957, which was later filmed twice as Village of the Damned, and The Chrysalids from 1955. I consider myself quite a fan of John Wyndham's works. Uh, they certainly have been foundational for me, and I teach his work, just like, as a matter of fact, I teach Octavia Butler's. And it struck me as I began to read this how very little I knew about John Wyndham, and it turns out that is by design, hence the title, Hidden Wyndham. Let me start by sharing the official blurb for this book with you. 
Quote, Until now, little was known of John Wyndham. Despite his popularity, his obsessive need for privacy led him to being known as the invisible man of science fiction. He redefined the genre with dystopian classics The Day of the Triffids and The Midwitch Cuckoos. In Hidden Wyndham, Amy Binns reveals the woman who was the inspiration for his strong-minded heroines. Their secret love affair sustained this gentle and desperately shy man through failure, war, and ultimately success. Hidden Wyndham shows how Wyndham's own disturbing war experiences, witnessing the destruction of London in the Blitz, then as a part of the invading British army in France and Germany, inspired and underlay his dystopian masterpieces. It provides an insight into the lives of men and women who refused to live by the oppressive rules of society in the mid-20th century. Many extracts from his letters are included, along with his own photographs. Put your hand on your heart sometimes, my lovely, and tell yourself that it is mine. An era had shut up its houses and gone away, perhaps forever, but we had that little much longer. How cruel the macrocosm, sweet, but how sweet the microcosm, oh, my darling. End quote. That last bit from one of his letters. Now, the book is by Dr. Amy Binns, who's a senior journalism lecturer in the University of Central Lancashire, and I was impressed by how well she mined his own writings, his letters, and the writings of Wyndham's brother about his brother, and really set the stage for how his somewhat tragic childhood, his unusual background with kind of an experimental education after leaving several terrible boarding school experiences, how his long-term love affair with uh, the woman who was his partner influenced him, and how he lived a life that was really set apart from and in opposition to the concept of conformity. She did a great job in letting Wyndham and his actions speak for themselves. I would pull back and say there were some things about the book that struck me that took me out of Binz's story, and part of this may be I, I think she's not particularly well steeped in the history of science fiction, and so a lot of the things that she talks about or tries to talk about or fails to talk about relating to how Wyndham's work fit into a larger science fictional conversation seemed like missed opportunities or missed marks. What her strength is, is talking about how his work came out of his life experiences and the unique context of what he did and where he was and and what he saw. There was also, and I think perhaps this is because of her journalism background and the way she relates things to contemporary events, several times that sort of shook me out of the moment where she tried to make a connection between things that seemed unlike to me and uh, also seemed to be very specific contemporary political references that will age the work poorly. And uh, I again, I thought it was quite a stretch for her to make some of the connections that she did, throwing in a reference to the Me Too movement or to students as snowflakes 
in ways that not only didn't really relate, but also seemed kind of in poor taste as well as strangely anachronistic. It also made me wonder who she thought her audience would be trying to make this topic seem relevant when, in fact, it needs no help. This is the first major biography of a major science fiction author, and the work sells itself uh, just on its own. So, at any rate, I think it is a flawed work, but I also think it's a very important one, and the fact that certain things that I would have expected weren't there simply means it's an invitation for other people to build on what Bence has begun here. The heavy lifting, the mining of Wyndham's own writings, which were just his letters, amazing. There were many times I, I was just struck by how the unique, bewildering, overwhelming times in which he lived then played out in his fiction. This is just very important work. And again, I think it's an invitation for other people to, to follow her and put this biography and Wyndham's life, now that it's been uncovered, in a larger context in terms of genre history. So, uh, again, a flawed work, a work that sometimes made me question exactly where she was coming from and who she thought was reading the work. But on the other hand, it's such a fascinating window into this very private creator. So if you are a fan of Wyndham's work or if you're interested in the way that, for example, World War II impacted science fiction, Western science fiction, English science fiction. This is just a must-read work, and I do hope it will signal a new era for Wyndham studies. Certainly, Wyndham's work seems very timely now in the way that Wyndham dealt with the questions of, you know, global apocalyptic events and how those events could bring forth the best of human nature and the very worst of human nature, and fears of conformity and oppression robbing individuals of their own choice and their own truth. Lastly, I want to recommend a 2018 biography. It's actually sort of a joint biography that is what I would call science fiction relevant. It's called In Byron's Wake, The Turbulent Lives of Lord Byron's Wife and Daughter, Annabella Milbank and Ada Lovelace. And it is by Miranda Seymour. She is the only author of these three that I was already familiar with, and I knew Miranda Seymour for her really excellent biography of Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley, the mother, you might say, of modern science fiction. And let me again share the official blurb for this book before I talk about it in a moment. Quote, A masterful portrait of two remarkable women, revealing how two turbulent lives were always haunted by the dangerously enchanting quicksilver spirit of that extraordinary father whom Ada never knew, Lord Byron. In 1815, the clever, courted, and cherished Annabella Milbank married the notorious and brilliant Lord Byron, just one year later, she fled, taking with her their baby daughter, the future Ada Lovelace. Byron himself escaped into exile and died as a revolutionary hero in 1824, aged 36. 
The one thing he had asked his wife to do was to make sure that their daughter never became a poet. Ada didn't. Brought up by a mother who became one of the most progressive reformers of Victorian England, Byron's little girl was introduced to mathematics as a means of calming her wild spirits. Educated by some of the most learned minds in England, she combined that scholarly discipline with a rebellious heart and a visionary imagination. As a child invalid, Ada dreamed of building a steam-driven flying horse. As an exuberant and boldly unconventional young woman, she amplified her explanations of Charles Babbage's unbuilt calculating engine to predict, as nobody would do for another century, the dawn of the modern computer age. When Ada died, like her father, she was only 36, great things seemed still to lie ahead for her as a passionate astronomer. Even while mired in debt from gambling and crippled by cancer, she was frenetically employing Faraday's experiments with light refraction to explore the analysis of distant stars. Drawing on fascinating new material, Seymour reveals the ways in which Byron, long after his death, continued to shape the lives and reputations, both of his wife and his daughter. During her life, Lady Byron was praised as a paragon of virtue. Within ten years of her death, she was vilified as a disgrace to her sex. Well over a hundred years later, Annabella Milbank is still perceived as a prudish wife and cruelly controlling mother. But her hidden devotion to Byron and her tender ambitions for his mercurial, brilliant daughter reveal a deeply complex but unexpectedly sympathetic personality. End quote. So this sets the stage then for one of the reasons why I think this book is relevant because of Ada Lovelace's relevance to modern science, and she has become in her own right a figure of science fiction because of her relationship to, say, Charles Babbage's calculating engine and other scientific discoveries. In short, her work both advanced and anticipated science, but she has become, in her own right, a figure in science fiction. Also, of course, Byron is related to Mary Shelley in the sense that it was with Byron that Mary Shelley was given that challenge that led to the writing of Frankenstein. And we can see sort of how in his own biography and in the timeline of his personal life, that important summer of 1816 fits in. I was interested to read Miranda Seymour's treatment of Byron's relationship with his half-sister, Augusta, that forms part of some of the depictions of Byron and his relationship to other people like Percy Shelley and Mary Shelley. I've talked in the past about, for example, the film Gothic about that summer of 1816 and the incestuous relationship between Byron and his half-sister is a focus in that work. I was interested to learn about how Lady Byron, uh, his wife's relationship to and commitment to educational reform related to the teaching of mathematics and sciences and the relationship of young women to those 
topics, and of course, how that played out with Ada's life. There were also some connections to genre history I wasn't expecting. For example, I didn't realize that uh, Lady Byron in her later life, became a friend of George MacDonald. I've talked a bit about MacDonald before. Uh, He lived from 1824 to 1905. He is one of the pioneering figures in modern fantasy literature, and he would go on to have a huge impact, he and his work, on people like the Inklings, like C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. This is a really well-researched work, and if you're interested in, goodness, lots of different kinds of history, history of science, history of literature, women's history, history of education, many different facets of intellectual history and social history, political history, all kind of intersect here. Plus, Byron was just a really weird dude. And the people around him, including his wife, his half-sister, and most certainly his daughter, were as fascinating in some ways as he was. Certainly, Ada Lovelace is a figure who has also taken on uh, the status of legend and icon, just like her father. These were, to put it crassly, sort of the rock stars of their day, and this biography reads in some senses like a novel. So, at any rate, for different reasons and, you know, with different (laughs) caveats, I do recommend both In Byron's Wake, The Turbulent Lives of Lord Byron's Wife and Daughter, Annabella Milbank and Ada Lovelace by Miranda Seymour, and Hidden Wyndham Life Love Letters by Amy Benz. And I encourage you to keep an eye out for A Handful of Earth, A Handful of Sky, The World of Octavia E. Butler by Linnell George. And I look forward to joining you again very soon for something completely different when we take another look back into genre history. Stay safe and well, my friends. Thank you. Amy, thank you so much. I actually had to get Amy to remind us to that because Amy drops out very you know very on the ball and nice and early with our, 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 our audio clips and I just at the moment I'm all over the place I'm forgetting left right and centre and I always tell Amy now will you just drop us an email and remind us when to put yours in so Amy a huge thank you huge thank you so that is Starship Sofa's 642 Take off that six and you've got 42. Yes. Anyway, that's not just, just seeing it flashing on my screen there. Until next time, just like to say, good night from me. Thank you for listening. I don't get out much. I've barely left the ground. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm Slowly won't get to you anytime soon. Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio. I wanna talk to you. This signal's going light speed. By the time I get my say, I might already be on to you and on my way. You're so far from here 
And at best I'm moving slow So I'm waiting on your call at home with nowhere to go Can you reach me? Is my signal getting through? Turn on your radio I want to talk to you I want to talk to you Myself on a radio wave, I might get to you someday. If books were rocket ships, I'd need only the will to fly. I'm still building word by word, and I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. I'll get out there by and by. I'll get out there, out there by and by. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.